0: This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 95 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the Cyberwire. This week, we welcome back Levi Gundert, Recorded Future's Vice President of Intelligence and Risk. In a wide-ranging conversation, we discuss the Insect Group's research into APT-10, the challenges of authentication at scale, the importance of framing communication in terms of quantifying risk, and what it means to be an ethical hacker. Levi also shares the potential trends he'll be following in the coming year. Stay with us.
1: it was a great piece of research that the insect group put out and it was actually the culmination of over a year of of research and analysis. And it was actually a a joint effort with Rapid7 and also one of the victims, Visma, in, in Norway. And it was really kind of a compilation of of everything that that was observed and you know it was great in this case that the visma came out and and publicly talked about their experience sort of as a victim in this case which is not something that you you often see but mm. in this case the chinese mss or ministry of state security had uh, compromised visma we believe primarily for the access that it, it provided to all of the third party organizations that that visma works with and and it was great that they, they talked about their experience. And so the data, you know, came from, from multiple places and multiple sources. And I think from my perspective, some of the more interesting takeaways from the report were number one, that the initial access came from credential reuse in Citrix. And hmm. Citrix is obviously not, it's not obvious, but oftentimes it's external facing in terms of being able to access citrix gateways and portals and 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 using legitimate employee credentials and we don't know exactly how the credentials were obtained in this case but it's an interesting sort of trend and takeaway that credentials continue to be a huge challenge for enterprises and where you have these large organizations with a lot of complexity it can just be very challenging to manage the identity and and access management component, you know, within an organization. And we continue to see adversaries really prefer to use credentials where they can to gain that initial foothold inside a network and in an organization. So from my perspective, that was that was an an interesting takeaway. You know, the other takeaway, of course, was as I as I earlier talked about, was sort of the the targeting of VISMA, we believe for some of the, the third party access that they provide, you know, they're a huge managed service provider in the Nordic region and they have so many relationships and i think that's true for most enterprises today where there are hundreds or thousands of vendors and suppliers that businesses work with and managing those relationships is just very complex there's so much complexity involved in that and we continue to see that third party fourth party risk being a a challenge and that's sort of another trend at least that i find you know interesting in terms of the, the chinese mss targeting here
0: yeah, I want to dig into each of these individually, because I, I think there's some good information uh, to, to, to explore. Um, and first of all, when it comes to credentials and this ongoing problem of credential stuffing and um, credentials being reused and so forth, I, I, I continue to scratch my head that on the enterprise side, that this continues to be as big a problem as it is, because it strikes me that we have some workable solutions to this. Yes, they may not be as convenient as a, a username and password combo, but um, you know, having to uh, to type in a code or having to have some sort of hardware dongle, it doesn't seem like it's going to ruin anyone's day. A- am I off the mark here, or, or do, are you as puzzled as it, at it by as I am?
1: No, I think you're right. You're absolutely right in terms of there are solutions out there that are going to significantly raise the bar. In terms of having success with password reuse there's no doubt about that the efficacy of two-factor authentication i think is is well established i think again the problem becomes when you're dealing with thousands of applications you're dealing with thousands of endpoints you're dealing with so many different types of software and heterogeneous operating system environments the level of complexity in, in trying to manage a solution like that it's just very challenging and so I think in in theory, you're absolutely right, but in practice, there are just so many challenges and there are there are obviously going to be times where certain hardware or certain software isn't covered you know in the overall umbrella you know of a solution that a company may choose, and part of it may be legacy applications, part of it may be unsupported hardware that someone forgot about i mean there's there's just so many there's so many outliers, and it all it takes is one as we know, in order to gain a foothold sometimes inside a network. And I think it's that complexity that just continues to be a, a driver for successful adversary activity.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a really good insight. I, I think, uh, you know, we, we, we talk about um, organizations' abilities to map out their networks and even know everything that's hosed up to their own systems.
1: Yeah, it's incredibly challenging. It really is. And there's obviously a lot of vendors in these spaces, there's a lot of good solutions and technologies. But at the end of the day, it's still a team that is responsible, you know, for deploying and managing these solutions in a comprehensive way. And it's, (laughs) if you've never worked in, in in a large enterprise environment and been responsible for something like that, you know, it can really feel overwhelming.
0: In your uh, comings and goings, the organizations that you work with and uh, and collaborate with, um, the ones who are doing it right, are, are there any common threads there? Any any things where you see? Yeah, these groups are are handling uh, authentication effectively and at scale. Uh, anything that those organizations have in common with each other?
1: I think a common theme is that organizations having success are really looking at everything they do. And in information security operation from a risk perspective, and for the most part, you know they're able to identify real monetary loss that comes from not doing identity access management well. And it, it really, in an enterprise, requires a lot of resources. You know, so so having the financial and human resources and people who are who really know what they're doing to to build and manage these programs is so essential. And you know, oftentimes. The information security group is not not able to obtain the resources they need, you know, whether it be the right people, the right amount of people or, or just the, the, the budget to to comprehensively implement something. You know, a lot of times you'll see sort of piecemeal implementation, but it, it's not 100 percent comprehensive and the management of it's not 100 percent comprehensive. And I think it's hard when you as a CISO and you have a set budget and it's finite and you look at you know where you're going to spend those resources um, you know, hopefully you're able to do some risk analysis and and make the determinations uh, that identity access management potentially in your organization really has to be at the top of the the top of the stack in terms of you know that resource prioritization.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting to me um, that that you uh, you bring up this whole notion of quantifying risk because it it strikes me that that is something that I think boards of directors have gotten on board with that. I guess that communication has gotten a lot better than it was over the past few years where that translation layer between the technical crew and the management crew, they're kind of doing better at speaking each other's language and understanding, and I guess more the the technical folks being able to address the board when it comes to risk, which is the language they're used to speaking.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I think I think we're seeing progress there. And I think, as you said, there's A general realization that they may not speak the language of technology or security but they do speak the language of of risk and and business risk and that's part of the challenge with quantifying or monetizing risk is that no pun intended but there's a risk of upsetting the status quo within the larger organization and traditionally you see groups like grc governance risk and compliance that have traditionally been responsible for calculating and articulating risk They haven't always done the best job when it comes to cyber risk component. And a lot of it is is because they don't see the data, historical data necessarily. They don't see that availability to populate the models that they've been working with. Mm. And so I think cybersecurity, in particular cyber risk, has to think outside the box a little bit in terms of the models that are used for quantification. And even if it's not something where you're taking the results of the model directly to the board... Even if it's just for the CISO to understand, you know, this is these are the areas where the model is telling us we could sustain the largest loss. Just having that information for yourself as a CISO can be very valuable as you think about how you prioritize your security spend and where your security resources go. And for a long time, I think it's kind of been a finger in the air type exercise uh, where someone from GRC asked for very minimal input from cybersecurity groups And I think the time is coming where you're going to see cybersecurity groups start driving the narrative and and the data behind the narrative themselves uh, in a much more positive way.
0: Now, how do you um, not fall into the trap of being a chicken little, if you will? You know, the sky is falling. We've got so many unknown unknowns when it comes to quantifying our risk. I'm thinking of, um, you know, you, you may lock down all the systems, but As we've talked about in the news, you know, that security camera that's up on the wall that uh, is, is connected to the network, somebody uses that as a way to get in, and nobody had considered that.
1: Yeah, and we actually talk about this a little bit. Myself and my colleague, Dr. Bill Lye, we wrote a paper called The Probability of Loss, and we talk about a model actually based on something by Douglas Hubbard called How to Measure Anything in Cybersecurity Risk. And we talk about the application of that model. And one of the things he talks about is that you don't need perfect data to be able to come up with a good a good model and, and good outputs from a model. You just have to be able to do a better job of estimating. And it turns out that we're all pretty overconfident in what we think we know. And when we we estimate things, we tend to be a little bit too overconfident. And to your point, we don't account for those types of black swan scenarios. And so... In his book, he talks about how to become a better uh, trained estimator, so to speak. And there's there's a lot of valid scientific evidence proving out you know what he he's proposing. And I think that's kind of part of what is the stopgap there in terms of coming up with uh, the data that you need to model. And you, again, you don't you don't have to come up with specific perfect values. You just have to come up with ranges. Right? You have to come up with a this is sort of the minimal possibility and the maximum possibility, and then let the model take over. Right. And and again, you look at the outputs of the model and say, you know, does this does this relatively track with, you know, what what we put into the model and, and why we put it in? And the nice thing about the model we talk about in the paper is that the variables are transparent and the assumptions are transparent. And ultimately, if someone says, well, I don't agree with these numbers, that's good. You want to have a dialogue. You want to have a conversation. You want to dig into it and say, Let's let's talk about it. You know, let's talk about why you don't agree. And let's talk about you know how we arrived at the numbers we did for projected loss. You know, that's absolutely a conversation that everyone should be trying to have in the broader organization. I, I want to switch gears a little
0: bit. And uh, I, I want to talk uh, about something that I know is uh, part of your background, and that is um, ethical hacking. Uh, you are actually a certified ethical hacker, and uh, I, that's not something we've talked about on this show before. I, I wanted to, first of all, for for you, how do you define that?
1: Oh, that's a good question. So I I actually obtained my certified ethical hacker credential a long time ago, and it was actually right after they they started the program, and I I just thought it was a, a really interesting program, and I, I was I very much wanted to to explore it, and I think it's it's actually come a long way in terms of advancing itself. I guess I would say that it's the ability to assume an offensive perspective and do it in a responsible way. You know, you're careful to operate within legal boundaries and you're careful to obtain the approvals that you need to before you start your work. But those are sort of the parameters and the guidelines to then move yourself into an offensive mindset and um, think about better detection of uh, security holes and, and vulnerabilities that you're looking to, to ultimately surface for, you know, improving defenses.
0: I guess there's a sort of a natural tension there where, um, especially when you're talking about the offensive side of things, it, I can imagine you must think to yourself sometimes, oh, if only I could do this, uh, then I would be able to do that. But I, I guess that's where the, the ethical part comes in.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think for the individuals that routinely do penetration testing or red teaming engagements, there's always ground rules that get set beforehand in terms of what's, what's going to be permissible and what's not. But if you're talking about it in just a general sense, where you're not doing any specific red teaming for your own organization or other organizations, I think there there's definitely a lot of that sentiment where you think if I could, if I could do this, I'd be confident that the resulting data would be, or the resulting access would be pretty worthwhile. Uh, so there's there's certainly i think a, a tension when you assume the offensive mindset that it, you're right you could you could you could accomplish more if if you didn't have to operate within legal boundaries
0: and i suppose there there could be a frustration there where some of your adversaries from around the world don't play by those rules
1: oh absolutely and you know we continue to see even in you know back to the the Chinese MSS activity, a lot of the TTPs there are the reuse of common tools that get used in offensive scenarios. So, they made use of China Chopper, a very prolific and popular web shell that was open source a long time ago. They made they made use of other tools like Mimi Cats that are openly available and supported. And there's a thriving community of people that develop red teaming type tools to ensure that defenses are the best that they can be. You can't really judge the efficacy of your internal security controls unless you're doing that offensive work, you know, to determine how do these how do these tools work and and how do my defenses stack up against them? And we continue to see nation state adversaries reusing those types of tools, you know, functionally being built for the red teaming pen test communities. So it's very frustrating uh, that they continue to use those because part of it part of that activity you know tends to make attribution more difficult but you know on the other side it's great for the red team and community you know that it is it is such a widely supported and, and vibrant community
0: where do you see things headed uh, this year as as you look out over the horizon towards this coming year the next uh, 12 months or so are there any trends that you see that are starting to to uh, show themselves anything in particular that that you think might be different from the year we had before
1: Well, it's interesting because it's not an election year, at least for the U.S. presidential race, and we don't have an Olympics happening this year. So in terms of of major events, it's sort of a a quieter year, I guess you'd say. But, you know, I I continue, again, to, to be amazed with the amount of credentials. You know, we continue to see billions of credentials dumped in the public domain. And it's interesting sort of watching the criminal space react to that because, there's a lot of software out there that is actually developed for programmatic credential stuffing, you know, Century MBA, Access Bomber, Sniper, you know, it's it's interesting as we see the development of of new tools that are basically built to help someone programmatically throw millions or billions of credentials at, you know, a particular web service or or web application. So it'll be it'll be interesting to sort of follow that development and I think the other the other notable event is that cryptocurrencies have fallen in value, meaning a lot of the, the malware out there that was doing cryptocurrency mining is sort of less impressive for the returns that it's producing for criminal operators. Um, so we're starting to see a little bit of pickup again in exploit kit activity. Um, I think uh, it's just a theory. I, you know, I can't prove that, but I think it's interesting that it's sort of correlating a little bit to the, the decline in, in cryptocurrency prices.
0: Yeah, that is interesting. Do you think we'll see a shift headed back towards ransomware?
1: It's it's certainly possible. And again, be, when when you see an uptick in exploit kit activity, meaning new exploit kits being sold in the underground economy, typically we see additional payloads coming with that because once, once your machine is infected or compromised via drive-by, then there's always an additional payload that comes with it. And that payload, more often than not, may turn into something like ransomware because the, the payday is so direct. I think the other thing actually that I was super interested in in the last couple of months of last year was really the whole spam campaign, targeting individuals with old credentials. It was a very clever twist on you know an old social engineering tactic, mm-hmm. which was, this is a legitimate email. And we're sort of proving that because we're, we're showing you your username and password that you've used you know at some prior date on some, some forum and you probably recognize it. And so, you know, it's given this legitimacy to the spam campaign. And, you know, it's really been a global spam campaign. And we actually did some analytics on the, you know, following the, the money. And a lot of people were paying, a lot of people were paying, you know, seven, eight hundred dollars in cryptocurrency. You know, they had made millions of dollars, you know, that we were able to track in a very short amount of time. And it was sort of interesting because they had taken they had taken the wide availability of these credentials, as we talked about before, you know, to the tune of billions of them and, you know, had just started um, emailing everyone in the databases, you know, with the corresponding uh, passwords and really sort of gave an air of legitimacy to the campaign. And it was nothing, nothing technically special, but it was very clever from a social engineering perspective.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating to me that as our, our technical tools become more sophisticated and better at doing the things that they need to do, that um, the value proposition gets better for the social engineering side. There's sort of a, it, it sort of swings back and forth.
1: Yeah, it is. It is very interesting, very interesting, actually. And I think one of the things that we may see this year is sort of the acceleration of very granular extortion opportunities. So, for example, in the past, you know, we've seen actors and groups that are trying to extort the heads of companies, you know, once they steal a database or even encrypt a database, very direct sort of communications with the heads of these companies trying to extort, you know, money from them. But I think what we may see in the future is actually targeting of individual victims within these databases instead of going at the companies directly, uh, going at individual victims in a more granular way. And that could be attempting to extort people uh, over everything, you know, from like we saw in the spam campaign, you know, it was trying to extort people over there, you know, what they were watching on the internet, uh, but it could be everything related to, you know, like health records. Um, we've seen, you know, a couple of recent healthcare database breaches where, you know, it's very sensitive information about individuals in those databases. And, There's a lot of targeting opportunities, you know, trying to extort people, perhaps for an example, you know, threatening to release information from their medical records about the prescriptions they take to, you know, someone's boss or their coworkers. Um, I think, unfortunately, you know, it's sort of the worst of human nature. And I think threat actors and adversaries see a lot of potential in, in these types of extortion channels. And unfortunately, victims in these Stolen databases, you know, may become additional victims, you know, uh, as they see opportunistic monetization coming out of that.
0: Our thanks to Recorded Futures' Levi Gundert for joining us. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Futures Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast team includes coordinating producer Amanda McKeown, executive producer Greg Barrett. The show is produced by Pratt Street Media with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.